Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. I'm here in a gigantic ballroom of the American Political Science Association uh, Saturday night. And I'm going to be talking about process tracing from a Bayesian perspective. <laughs> That's right. Okay. So here with me is Tasha Fairfield, who's Associate Professor at the London School of Economics. Um, and she's pretty much my guru on all things Bayesian process tracing. Um, right, so Tasha, process tracing, just for those who aren't in the groove, what is it? So process tracing means different things to different people, mm-hmm. but very broadly speaking, I would say that it is a label that we put on qualitative research where we're trying to assess an explanation using qualitative evidence. Right. So usually people think about it in terms of I have a hypothesis for how something happened and yes. it has some kind of causal process that underlines it. So very often you go out and you look for evidence that would sort of show you that causal process in action. And the Bayesian part that we're adding is to really emphasize the role of alternative hypotheses in trying to get an inference. Yes. So we can go into more of that yes. whenever you're ready. No, I'm, I'm ready <laughs> so, for it. I'm ready okay. for it. Okay. okay, so give me a scenario where there might be some... Oh God, can I just say segue? This room, this room, dear listeners has fantastic acoustics, and I just love it. <laughs> I could talk in this room all day. Okay, so uh, give me a... Sec- wow, let me, you hear that echo? Okay, so give me a scenario where we might have some alternative hypotheses. Okay, so this is a very, you know, silly example. Please. So suppose you want to know, you want to figure out who ate all the cookies in the cookie jar. Yes. And your working hypothesis might be the dog. And there are many alternative possibilities. So the dog might have done this alone. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the five-year-old is the, actually the suspect who ate all the cookies in the cookie jar. Yes. And it was only the five-year-old. Mm. The dog had nothing to do mm. with it. We could think of many other possibilities. Maybe they colluded. They might have colluded. Right. Precisely. Yes. They might have you know, had a plan uh-huh. for uh-huh. getting the cookies out of the cookie uh-huh. jar. Maybe the child lifted the dog up or the yes. child stood on the dog to reach the cookies. Sure. Classic. Okay. Um, and then there could be a whole slew of other possibilities. You know, maybe it was your uncle. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was a thief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was a cookie monster. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So usually, when we're doing Bayesian reasoning, or all the time, we're Bayesian reasoning, doing Bayesian reasoning. We want to assert from the outset which suspects or which hypotheses or explanations we can consider to be the most plausible. Right. And we're going to make a tentative assumption that one of those hypotheses has to be true. So yes. we're setting them up as alternative explanations. Right. And we're going to say, these are the only con- explanations that we're going to consider right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That sort of sets up the inferential problem and you're going to compare these rival hypotheses about who ate all the cookies out of the cookie jar. So for simplicity, let's just say the dog or the five-year-old or they colluded. Yes, okay. So I've cast my net wide for possible hypotheses and now I've got these three most plausible hypotheses, I'm going to assign likely odds to them. Great, yes. Based on my prize, based on my prize. Based on your background knowledge. Yes. Based on your background knowledge, you're gonna give an initial assessment of Mm. which of those hypotheses you think is most plausible. Right. So, let's say you have a dog and you have a five-year-old. Yeah, and I know them well. And I I know the dog is naughty. Yeah, the dog is naughty. And the dog has a real, a real soft spot, a real sweet spot, yes. So, okay, and how about the five-year-old? Five-year-old, man, he, he's more of a savory kind of guy. Okay, so may or may not be well-behaved, but prefers the... Yeah, the <laughs> he's after the samosas. <laughs> okay, <laughs> very sophisticated taste. <laughs> Good. 
So you would you would start out with a prior based on your background knowledge, yes. personality of the dog. Yes, and the exactly, precisely. That, that maybe strongly favors mm. the dog as the more likely suspect over yes. the five-year-old. And, yes. and again, we're just we're assuming that our hypotheses are the dog did it alone, five-year-old did it alone, or they colluded. So you would strongly favor the dog over the child, and maybe, I don't know, maybe let's say you would moderately or weakly favor the collusion of the dog? I mean, the collusion is still possible, because if the dog likes, likes sweet things, he may have used the child for his own sort of purposes, right? The dog may have corrupted the child. Yes, yes, I, I'm not going to rule that out. Okay, okay, so there we have it. So we have some priors. Mm. We strongly favor the dog over the five-year-old, mm. and we maybe moderately favor the collusion yes. hypothesis over yes. the yes. child doing it yes. alone. Okay. Now what? Now what? Now, we're now we're going to go look for evidence. Okay. We're going to find evidence, and that evidence is going to allow us to update our prior views. Uh-huh. So, sort of colloquially speaking, we're sort of assessing whether the evidence fits better with one hypothesis over the other. Right. And what this Bayesian framework tells us is that what that actually really means in more precise language is that we need to ask which hypothesis makes the evidence seem more expected right or less surprising okay so whichever hypothesis makes that evidence seem more expected or less surprising we're going to gain confidence in the hypothesis to the extent that it makes the evidence we see less surprising relative to a rival okay so the whole process is we're going to start with a set of explanations of alternative explanations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. clearly delineated well-specified alternative explanations yes, yes we have a prior view based yes. on our background knowledge mm-hmm. about life in the universe i should say segue for the for the listeners that tasha is giving some excellent gesticulation really visually mapping this out for you <laughs> One, two. the visuals are great here especially in the expansive ball right okay okay i'm sorry i'm yeah. sorry right we use it with a Bayesian term here, you don't mm. have to know, but it's called a likelihood ratio, and it's asking, if you were to mentally inhabit the world of one of these hypotheses and imagine the kinds of things that you would see, the kinds of things that would be expected mm. and sensible mm. in that world, mm. how does the evidence fit in there? Yes, right? yes, Does the evidence exactly. seem like, oh yeah, this is exactly the kind of thing that I would expect if I'm living in a world where this child did it alone hypothesis mm. is mm. true? Or does it seem, like it would have to be really coincidental mm, or just mm. very odd or improbable right. in that world. Right, yes. And then we go and we imagine an alternative world yes. where the other hypothesis is true. Yes. And we mentally have it that world and do the same kind of exercise. Like what is the most plausible And I think this scenario? point I think this point about and you make this point in your papers, um, that you've got to mentally inhabit each world. Mm-hmm. And you've got to take each hypothesis really seriously when you consider each piece of evidence. And I think there's such a tendency for everyone in social science that after you've done a little bit of research, you sort of develop a hypothesis in your mind, and then there's always the danger of confirmation bias. And we pay more attention to things um, that confirms our priors, and we discard, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, disca- uh, uh, dis- discard things that aren't quite fitting. So this idea, this insistence that every time you get a new piece of evidence, you've got to mentally inhabit each hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I was saying the other day, I rather like the idea of having a poster up on my walls, embodying each hypothesis to really get me in the zone, so to speak. Okay, so could you give me some examples of evidence we might find and how we might deal with that? Okay, so for our cookie jar scenario, yes, um, if we imagine the kinds of evidence we might find when we start our investigation, mm. right? Maybe we look to see where the crumbs are. Yeah. So suppose we're doing our initial investigation, we discover mm. there are crumbs on the five-year-old's face. Mm. Okay. 
So we're going to start with imagining a world where it is in fact the case that the child the child did this alone. Yes, I'm mentally inhabiting the world in which the child does it alone. It's very crumbs. likely the kid would have crumbs on his face. I, exactly the kind of thing we would expect. Yes, yes. If that is the world, right? So we have the child did it alone. Let's compare that to the collusion hypothesis. Mm. So if there are cookies on the kid's face and we're in a world where they colluded. Yeah, that's possible. Quite possible. Yes. Mm-hmm. Not going to rule that out. I would probably say almost as plausible. Yeah, as absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. So we have a piece of evidence that discriminates quite strongly between one pair of hypotheses, but yes. doesn't really yes. help us narrow down between right. the other two. Right, okay. Right, so we've gotten somewhere. Yes, we've yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. On one pair of hypotheses, yes. but we're still yes. not so sure on yeah. the other two. Yeah. Okay. So we go look for more evidence. Yes. Okay, give me another example of evidence that we might find. I guess if there were muddy paws on the counter. Oh, yes. Muddy paws on the counter. Yes. Okay, that, that again, that makes the collusion hypothesis likely and it makes the dog doing it alone very likely. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So that would um, start to weigh in favor of either one of those hypotheses mm. that involve the dog over the child alone. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's one. Nanny cam footage of the cookie jar. Right. So this would be, <laughs> we could almost call this sort of a critical case. Yeah. So if you actually have nanny cam footage of the cookie jar, yes. you can be you know, pretty confident that yeah. when you watch, yeah. if it's a well-positioned camera, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, you can be pretty confident oh, that yeah. after watching that footage, you're going to have very strong confidence or about which hypothesis is mm, correct. Mm, mm, right? mm. So let's say the nanny cam footage um, shows you know, the kid lifting up the dog, to reach the shelf, the dog knocks the cookies off, and then they both eat them together. Well, in the world where they both colluded, <laughs> exactly the kind of thing we'd expect. In a world where either one of them did it alone, exceedingly low probability you would have to imagine that that nanny cam footage was somehow doctored by someone who has a you know an interest in I don't know what. <laughs> right. So now you've got super strong evidence. Okay, so I'm I'm with you. So the basic idea is that whatever my hypothesis, I imagine multiple possible explanations. Yes, sorry. At least, at least one alternative and possibly more. I but I cast the net wide. I cast the net wide. I narrow it down. I assign my odds, and then each and every piece of information, evidence that I find. I mentally inhabit the world of each hypothesis and I consider does the evidence make that world more or less likely? Okay, that's simple enough. Does the hypothesis make the evidence more or less yes, likely? Sorry, yeah. sorry. Does the hypothesis. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Dot Tasha. Right. So now I want now I want a real social science example. Can you give me one? Okay. So I'm a comparative politics person. Yes. And so we are going to go to the realm of state building. Uh-huh. And there are two, um, if you're a comparative politics person, at least, there are two somewhat familiar hypotheses about why some states might fail to develop strong institutions. So okay. Why, you, why a country might end up with a weak state. Yes, yes. So the first is the resource curse. So the resource curse says that if you have mineral export dependence, uh-huh. for a variety of reasons, you're likely to end up with a weak state, and that has to do with the ease of the state, the country being able to get revenue just from the natural resource sector without having to develop an efficient tax agency to actually tax their own citizens because it's so easy to just 
skim off the top of these mineral resource exports, so there's no incentive to develop the capacity to have a strong state, and the whole process just never starts going. Okay, okay. okay. And you tend to get, so the resource curse is associated with, instead of investing in, in, in strengthening institutions, you tend to get a lot of patronage spending yes. um, to sort of all sorts of sectors, or, or, or generally, or at least among elites. So you're just okay. sort of spreading the wealth around, and everybody's mm. just living off of the natural resources without investing in actually developing state trails. Okay. 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 The second very common hypothesis locates the uh, locates state building in war warfare, so yes. conflict over borders. Mm-hmm. So this is the classic Tilly argument. Mm-hmm. Um, was it war built this or war made the state and the state made war. Right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So the idea here is that in order to raise and sustain an army to defend yourself from your neighbors who are trying to conquer you and take your land yes. away from you mm-hmm. and dominate you, you have to be able to extract resources from your own population yeah. in order to yeah. build and sustain this army. So by necessity, if you're going to be a state that survives, you're going to have to have this effective tax capacity and you're going to have to develop all sorts of other kinds of institutional strength to support your military and so that process builds strong state institutions. So if you don't have conflict, over borders, then the implication is that you're not going to end up with a strong state because you never have to go through that process of being forced to develop an effective tax capacity. Yes, okay. yes, yes. So we're going to consider the case of Peru. Okay, so just to recap, I've got one hypothesis is the mineral resource curse, and two is that I'm unable to tax some of my citizens. They're resisting taxation. Um, so in both, citizens are going to resist taxation. So both hypotheses imply that citizens are going to resist taxation. Okay. So the, the critical difference is that the resource curse locates the crux of the problem in mineral resource dependence. Right. So if you have that, you never get the set of incentives that lead you to develop yes, a yes. strong state. The other locates the incentives in having to defend oneself against warfare. So that okay. if you lack warfare, then you don't get the set of incentives that okay, develop okay, a strong okay. state. So the, the incentives start in different places. Right, I'm with you. Okay. Yeah, resources being bad or absence of warfare being bad. So free, f- <laughs> so. free flow of good things or no bad thing coming in. Okay, okay. got you. Okay. Right, now I need to, so those are my two hypotheses. Those are two now I need to assign prior odds. Now oh, I need okay. to assign odds based on my prior beliefs, okay. right? Yes, yes. Yes, I do. Yes, you do. Right, okay, uh, I don't know. So, for the purpose of this exercise, yes. we're going to assume that we just don't know anything relevant about Peru. So, Latin mm. Americanists out there, mm. forget everything you know about Peru. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, so, we're going to assume really, really minimal, minimal background information. We okay. know almost nothing about Peru except okay. that it's a country. Okay. So, I'll assign them equal likelihoods? Absolutely. Okay, okay. Right, now I'm looking for evidence. Tasha, what is, the, fir- okay. what is the first piece of evidence I find? So, here's our first piece of evidence. We are going to learn that Peru faced persistent military threats after it became independent. Right. Its economy was long dominated by mineral exports, and it never developed an effective state. Well, that, okay, so I'm now going to, so I'm going to go through my rules, I'm going to go through my rules systematic. See, this is what I like about it, it forces me to be very systematic. So, I'm going to mentally inhabit the world of the uh, resource curse theory, right? I mentally consider that, that, that world, I'm mentally inhabiting that world, and I learn that there have been persistent military threats, and I learn that it's had a uh, resource wealth. Mm-hmm. And, and you also learn... That it's it got a weak state. Has a weak state. 
All of those things are possible under the resource curse hypothesis. Mm-hmm. They don't make it... They, they make it likely. They make they it... Do. Yeah, they make it likely. Absolutely. Right. That's all I need to do on that one. Uh-huh. I now consider my next one. My next one is the absence of, the absence of external threats. Oh, wow. This new information makes this hypothesis less likely. Right? Because you just said that it is persistent external threats. So that, that contrasts with this hypothesis. So I'm saying this new piece of information makes this second hypothesis less likely. Yes. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Right. Full so, marks for me. Absolutely. So. What is my next piece of evidence? Oh, well, let me just recap. Oh, so, yeah. Okay. Sorry. Right. So sorry. we have under the resource curse hypothesis. Yes. Right. So when we learned that Peru had, I mean, the, and the key pieces of information there are that Peru had resource wealth and it developed a weak state. Yes, yes. So that is exactly what we would expect under the resource yes, curse. Yes, seeing yes. Mineral dependence and weak state. Yes. Um, so those are, these are sort of like looking at the um, independent variable scores and the dependent variable mm. scores, right? Under the warfare hypothesis, the salient pieces of information there are that we had lots of warfare or lots of military threats and we still developed a weak state, mm-hmm. right? So that really goes quite contrary to yep, what we would expect under the theory, yeah, yeah. right? If we have a lot of conflict over borders, we ought to instead have seen a strong state, yes. but we did not. So that evidence would be very surprising under the warfare hypothesis, and we would have to invent all sorts of unusual, implausible, coincidental kinds of scenarios to try and explain why that might have happened in the world. Yes. Right? So this would be a piece of evidence that very, very strongly weighs in favor of the um, resource curse. Right. With you. I'm with so you. this is this is just sort of initial information about in, independent variables and dependent variables, yes. and so um, this would I mean something that strong might be enough for you to sort of discard that hypothesis mm. right there and try to think of another alternative. Yeah, yeah. But for the sake of just continuing, let's say we want to be even more confident. Oh, for sure. Of course. So we'll go and look for. Let's be relentless. Yeah, let's be relentless. So let's go and look for another piece of information. So we're going to learn that throughout this time period. Yes. Peruvian agriculture relied on an enormous semi-servile labor force, so repressed peasants tied to the land. Yeah. And when Chile invaded, there was a Chilean invasion, Peruvian elites were far more concerned that peasants remain under control than they were with contributing to national defense. So the mayor of Lima actually openly hoped for a prompt Chilean occupation for fear that these peasants might rebel. So the agrarian upper class not only refused to support these scattered efforts to fight back against the invaders, and instead they actively collaborated with the Chilean occupiers because of um, this rebels' reliance on armed peasant guerrillas. Wow, okay. So the, so the agrarian elites were so concerned about a peasant uprising that they purposefully weakened the state, that they would not fund in strengthen state capacity. So that's not exactly the Tilly hypothesis. That's something a bit different. Right. So this that seems um, like this a, a new quite explanation. different from the Tilly yeah, hypothesis, yeah, yeah, yeah. in fact. Right. So what I'm going to suggest? Yeah. So what do we do now? What do we do now? And it's also not really resource cursing. No, no, no. It's not resource. It's not very resource cursing. So what I'm going to suggest yeah. now, after learning this evidence. Yes. So we already decided, based on what we learned before about uh, Peru having 
both uh, border threats and resource curses and a weak state. We uh -huh. already decided that the warfare hypothesis was doing very badly relative to the resource curse. Yes, yes. So I'm going to suggest we're going to set up a new inferential problem. So we're yes. going to throw out the warfare hypothesis for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems unlikely. And instead, this evidence that we just learned might suggest a new hypothesis. Right, like labor oppressive agriculture. Has something important to okay. do with Okay, okay. Yeah. So this might inspire a hypothesis that says, well, you know, it's agriculture that relies on repressed peasants. This is the central factor that hinders institutional development, mm, mm. right? Why would that be? Well, elites are going to resist taxation and they're going to re resist giving up control over their own local security forces that they use to keep their peasants in check. Right. Because they're so afraid that if they give up that control, the centralized state is not necessarily going to be able or willing to get that army out into the countryside to put down the peasants if they rebel. So if you have an unruly peasant that you're trying to oppress, but you don't have... A bunch of them. A bunch of unruly <laughs> peasants. Yes, yeah. right, one, my, my one very tricky peasant. Um, a bunch of unruly peasants, and you don't yet... And here, I guess, you've got a, a, a problem of a feedback loop, right? You're so pessimistic about the state that you won't fund the state because you never fund the state. The state always lacks capacity yeah. to protect you. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, that's a real trap, right? Uh -huh. um, anyway, anyway, yeah. So your whole point is that your priority is repressing your unruly peasants. Right. So elites want to keep their own local security forces. They yeah. don't want to pay taxes mm, to the central mm, government. Mm, they don't want to give up control over coercion mm, so that they can deploy their, their own coercive forces at a yes. moment's notice and yes. squash the peasants should yes. they rebel. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Better to keep your money for yourself so you can use it to repress Personal your peasants protection. than rely on some external party who doesn't yes. seem that great anyway, can't necessarily be relied upon. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. I'll repress my peasants myself, thank you very much. <laughs> there you have it. There okay. you have it. Right, so now I need to so now I need to look for evidence. Well actually there's one other step. So okay. we're actually working with two different hypotheses now. Yes. We've thrown out. Oh, do I need to assign my odds? Do you want me to assign my odds again? Yeah. Okay. So what we have to do is we have to go back to our original background information. Yes. So we've changed our hypotheses. We're doing a yeah. different inferential problem. Yes. We have to go back to our background knowledge that yes. we had before. Yes. Thinking about what our priors would be. Yes. So in this case, I would say, well, we're probably also pretty indifferent between yeah, the I'm indifferent. resource curse and this labor oppressive agriculture yeah, I'm indifferent. hypothesis. I'm indifferent. Right? I'm indifferent. Or you could say, I'm actually really worried that my readers are going to be skeptical of this hypothesis because it's this new novel thing. It's not been seen in the state building literature before. So I think my readers are going to be skeptical of it. So just right. to be extra safe, mm. let's start by favoring the resource curse over labor oppressive agriculture maybe moderately. Just to, oh, right. okay. just to be sort of extra Yeah, okay. So people sure haven't no found the end. No one no one has no one has found that before. Mm, seems a little sketchy. Yeah. My readers might be skeptical. If my readers are really skeptical of my argument, can I at least convince them that I have so I the evidence weighs so strongly in favor of my explanation over the other that even though they started out really skeptical, they've got to come to a point where they're taking my explanation seriously, mm -hmm. right? They may have started out so skeptical that they're not willing to accept my explanation as the best hypothesis yet, but they've got to be taking it seriously given the weight of evidence I've shown. Right, so your readers might be skeptical. Now what? So, we assign slightly lower odds to the labor repressive agriculture. Okay, so now we go out and we hunt for new evidence, correct? Now we're going to go get, well now, now actually we have to take into account the evidence that we talked about before. Yes. So our background information was totally minimal. 
The yes. first piece of evidence we learned is that Peru has the uh, resource, mineral resource dependence, mm. and it has um, the weak state yes. and the warfare. The, I yes. mean, the, the warfare doesn't really make a difference mm. in this instance. Mm-hmm. Mm. So our first piece of evidence was about there being uh, mineral resource dependence, Mm -hmm. conflict over borders, and a weak state. Okay. So as we talked about before, that evidence fits very well with the resource curse. It's exactly the kind of thing that we would expect if the resource curse is the correct hypothesis. But that information is not really that surprising under the labor-oppressive agriculture hypothesis either. Because a weak state that has mineral resources would still be an easy and attractive target for invasion. Yes. If labor oppressive agriculture were the true case of state weakness, people are still going to want to come and take the resources. Hell especially yeah. If it's a Hell weak yeah. State. Okay. Yeah. But nevertheless, I would say that the resource dependence in conjunction with the weak state makes that information more expected under the resource mm-hmm. curse. It's sort of more strongly predicted under that hypothesis. For sure, for sure. Okay, you agree. Okay, so I would say it moderately favors the resource curse over labor press of agriculture. Okay. Okay. So now we go, go back to that piece of evidence that inspired this new labor press of agriculture hypothesis about the uh, Peruvians welcoming in the Chilean invaders yes. to be sure yeah. that the peasants didn't take the opportunity to rebel. Yes. Right? So... This evidence, I would say, would be extremely surprising if the resource curse is true. Right. Right. If the resource curse is true, we would expect, you know, whatever, we would expect that the elites are going to want to fight back against the Chileans to protect their territory and to keep control of their resources. Yes, yes, yes. Revenue, right? Yes. Defend your borders and keep control of your resources, resource wealth. But under the labor-oppressive agriculture hypothesis, this actually starts to make a lot more sense, right? It's sort of speaking to the mechanisms that are postulated in the hypothesis mm. about, you know, why would this be? Well, you know, it would make sense that they're welcoming these invaders in if they're so paranoid over their peasants rebelling that they don't even want to support the most basic function of mm. the state, which is national defense, mm. right? So I would say that Evans strongly favors labor-oppressive agriculture because, you know, that's almost the only hypothesis I could possibly imagine that would make this very strange evidence about welcoming invaders in. Yes. Yes. expected. Yeah, why would you welcome an invader if you've got, yeah, mineral wealth that you want to protect, right. et, cetera, et cetera. Right, right. So we have a piece of evidence that moderately favored the labor press of agriculture hypothesis uh-huh. over the resource curse, and we have a piece of evidence that strongly favors labor press of agriculture. So... We come out with, you know, pretty strong evidence in favor of that hypothesis. So we need to combine that with our priors. But if our priors started from being indifferent, mm. we're going to come out strongly favoring the labor press of agriculture. Boom. Right. Boom. If our priors sort of moderately favored the resource curse, we're going to come out moderately to strongly favoring the labor press of agriculture hypothesis. You and then prize. we can go, now that we've done that, we can go and we can look for Tasha, more I made a evidence. joke. I made a joke and you didn't laugh. I didn't think you're I said you brought my prize, which is... Woo! <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's very cool. Okay. That's very cool. Okay, okay. so Tasha, what I'm going to take... Oh, you know I had a question. I was talking about this with a friend, because, you know, that's all I do. I just talk about Bayesian process tracing. And she said, you know what, Alice... She said, it seems like a tall ask for every single piece of evidence I find. Like, I mentally inhabit the world of all these different hypotheses. I mean, 
I just said to her, well, you know, just suck it up. That's what we need to do. That's what we need to do in order to be certain. We need to, we need to do this. And if we don't do it, if we just... I, I think this is essential for rigor. And she was just saying, oh, it's ultra demanding. And she also said, she, so she said two points. It's ultra demanding and it would encourage you not to... Look, because it's so labor demanding, you'd look at less evidence uh, rather than more. Mm. But but my response okay. to that is, if you're doing some half-assed job with a lot of evidence, what is that? Fine, you've got more evidence, but you're not thinking about it so carefully. I much prefer, you know, you know, in an so ideal here's, here's world, in an ideal world, you look at loads and loads of evidence really carefully. Absolutely, go get loads and loads of evidence. Mm. Absolutely, go get loads and loads of evidence. That's mm. what we do well as qualitative mm. scholars. Mm. <laughs> so. Um, it is a big ask to do this for every piece of evidence yes. you don't necessarily have yes, to. Yes. So part of learning about Bayesianism is to yeah. try to train your intuition so that you just intuitively do this better than you might otherwise. Right, okay. The other thing that you can do is um, you can... Sorry, we, we would always want to do this. We want to highlight the evidence that's most decisive, yes. the evidence that weighs yeah. most strongly yeah. in favor yeah. of one or the other. Yes. That's, that you know, is much more expected in the world of one hypothesis yeah. compared mm. to the other. Yeah. And if you have a bunch of decisive evidence like that, that's going to drive the inference. So you can do this on a few key pieces of evidence to sort yeah. of show yeah. that your thinking is rigorous without yes. doing it on all of them. Yeah. The other thing that's nice to do is very often, because we do go get tons and tons of evidence, we will come out with a body of evidence that really strongly supports one hypothesis over another. But what we can do is we can look for the individual pieces of evidence that on their own would go most counter to the overall inference. So maybe like the whole body of our evidence taken together really strongly supports our hypothesis over the rival, but there are pieces of evidence that don't seem to quite fit, that kind of seem to weigh in favor of the rival rather than ours. So we can take this couple pieces of evidence and do the Bayesian reasoning on them, be open about the fact that they don't quite fit, and make some sort of assessment of how much they counteract the overall inference. So we have these couple pieces of evidence that sort of weigh in the other direction, but look at this other body of evidence that seems to really overwhelm mm, mm, those mm. couple pieces. Okay. So there's lots of room for applying this at different levels of demanding this. <laughs> I also want to ask a question, Tasha, because you've been trying to promote this Bayesian process tracing, and you've had a little bit of pushback. Can we talk about that? That not everyone's on board with that. Why do you think that is? What kind of concerns do people express? So there are a lot of different possible responses. So this is um, a very different foundational approach to how you do inference. So mm. most of political science, and especially the large N, mm. world is a frequentist statistics world. And yeah. that's an entirely different view of what probability is. Yes. And strictly speaking, according to the foundational principles of frequentist statistics, mm. you can only use that approach to analyze stochastic data, stuff that comes from a random sample. Yes, yes. Qualitative research uses non-stochastic data, yes. non-stochastic information. Yes, correct, yes. So you can't apply frequentist principles no, to qualitative sure, research, sure. but that in itself is sort of a very novel idea. And this, you know, Andy Bennett has been... Um, his early, earlier work has been trying to make that point and we're sort of trying to make it even more forcefully that these are very different epistemological 
approaches and the frequentist approach can't actually be used on qualitative Right, research. so that's a quant-qual difference. Right. Uh, quant -qual difference. It's, it's a quant-qual difference, but so, what, so it what, really so, so, is, yeah, what it sorry. really is is a, an epistemological I'm with issue. you. So, what, right. so when you get the, this pushback against the Bayesian process tracing, who is that coming from? Primarily, the frequentists. Well, so that's that's one one part. So, so the quant very people, strong, the quant committed people, uh... frequentist, uh, quantitative people. This would be like the KKV, the KKV approach. So that was the initiative of the King Cohen Verba approach that started this whole dialogue about quantitative versus qualitative. So uh -huh. that was in those. That's sort of the the classic frequentist mm -hmm. effort to understand qualitative research within a frequentist mm -hmm. paradigm. Mm -hmm. Which this is pushing back on. Um, so, what would the frequentists do in process tracing? I mean, you just you just can't. It doesn't it doesn't work. Okay, okay, <laughs> right. So, um, then within the qualitative community, because process tracing means different things to so many different people, and there's so many different approaches. There's QCA, and there's um, mechanistic approaches to process tracing. So. Some of those approaches um, stress yes. tracing the causal mechanism much more as like in itself enough for input. Tell me more. So some of the mechanistic approaches say, well, what we really need to do is just trace out every step in the causal mechanism, and then we show that our hypothesis is, is good. And the Bayesian would say, well, yes, go try to get information about a causal process, but you got to check whether or not that information is more plausible in your arrival. Right, so some people just trace the steps, tra oh, sort of draw, trying to draw a line between what's going on without rigorously inhabiting, mentally inhabiting each world, yes. is what you're saying. Yes. But, so, but, but I don't get why they would be pushing back. Where's the pushback? Like, where are the people who are saying we don't we don't like we don't like this Bayesian process tracing? Like they're just less rigorous. Are, you, yeah. are those the people that you're getting pushed back from? They have their own foundation to it, and um, so it's an effort to sort of understand. Are they the people that are resisting Some your Bayesian? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you want me to use names? I don't. No, no, no. I don't use, use names. Yeah. My podcast is a lovely people-only podcast. I'm not bitching about anyone. No, no, no. I, I just want to understand the arguments. I'm just saying there are, there are other people who have sort of, you know, developed their own sort but of But why? I don't understand, the, I don't understand the justification so. of not mentally inhabiting every hypothesis. I mean, I guess I would say those that just don't necessarily say you shouldn't think about alternative explanations, mm. but they, they give far less importance... Because in Bayesianism, your, all of your inferential leverage comes from asking which hypothesis makes the evidence more expected. Yes. So it's the fundamental thing that allows you to make inferential claims or yes. to update. It's the thing that allows you to update. Yes. So I think a lot of the other approaches don't place the same importance on so alternative explanation. If I'm a Bayesian, when I get a new piece of evidence, I ask one question. I say, which hypothesis makes this more likely? Right. Yeah. For other people, when they get a new piece of evidence, what do they do? For other process traces? They sort of say, oh, this shows this part of the mechanism. Well, they just slot it in. They so slot they, it they into the job set. Mm -hmm. This is just showing this is what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the other thing about Bayesianism is that... And I just feel that's so prone to confirmation bias. It is very prone to confirmation Because exactly if I'm, if exactly I'm not problem. forcing myself to consider each hypothesis, then I just... I may, you know, even as I try to, con you know, even as I think of myself as a great social scientist, 
I am subject to confirmation bias. And I personally think that if I'm not forcing myself, if I don't have this structured approach where I say, Alice, you must mentally inhabit the world of each hypothesis, then I could be lazy. I could be super lazy. I could be tired of it. I could disregard a piece of evidence. I could... Not really. Not look for any, a, you know, bad intent either. Just no, no, no. It's not like I'm a malevolent evil lady in a, in a castle. Slightly sloppy thinking. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You're accusing me of sloppy thinking. Yes. No, 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 no,